This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Right now, there's a man sitting outside Parliament House in Canberra and he's protesting for action on climate change. And you're probably thinking, why is that a big deal? There are always protests outside Parliament House. This one isn't like all of the others, though. It's a hunger strike. And this person who's doing it is not like any other climate protester because he's a former Australian ambassador, a United Nations official, former government advisor, and he hasn't eaten for 14 days. Later, we're going to be speaking to this man, find out what his plan is, how he's feeling after two weeks with no food. Later, we're finding out why so many people are learning how to fix stuff. There's this whole repair movement that's taking off around Australia. People fixing their headphones, their clothes, their furniture, whatever it is. We'll be getting into that. First, though. Hack. An inquiry into unsolved gay hate deaths in New South Wales has concluded in Sydney. On Triple J. You know, when Sydney hosted World Pride this year, it was a real example of just how far societies come with so many people feeling safe to be themselves in their community. But it hasn't always been like that. Over 40 years, gay people were murdered across Sydney, targeted because of their sexuality, and their deaths went unsolved for decades. A lot of them are still unsolved. An inquiry in New South Wales has been looking into these deaths, into the crimes, and it's lasted a year, looking at how police handled the cases. It's also been critical of police. And this week, there was the final public hearing. What's going to come of this? In a bit, we'll ask an expert. But first, here's Joe Lauder with a recap. The whole family's been let down by the New South Wales Police Force a long time ago. This is Peter Russell. In 1989, his brother John was found dead below a cliff in Sydney's east, not far from a known gay beat. In the photos of the crime scene, there's hair in his hand, but the police lost it. He had the answer in his hand and they lost it and then they laundered the clothes. It was just one of a whole spate of attacks and murders over 40 years in Sydney. Some gangs would deliberately target areas where gay men would be. Yesterday was the final hearing of an inquiry into 30 of these gay hate deaths and how the New South Wales police handled their cases. It's found that at times police didn't investigate the deaths properly, mishandled evidence, didn't pursue leads and had dodgy record-keeping for cold case files. Some exhibits, including the murder weapon in a number of cases, had been lost. Over 18 months, a team of lawyers and investigators have gone over over 140,000 documents and they've held hearings about these deaths. The chief counsel for the commission yesterday called out the attitude of the police to their inquiry. The attitude of the New South Wales police force has sometimes appeared overly defensive, even adversarial. The inquiry actually solved two of these cold cases, but in both cases, the offender had since died. And there are fresh leads on some other cases. These private hearings and investigations have shed considerable additional light on several of the deaths under review by the Special Commission, including a number of possible new lines of investigation for follow-up by the police. There's going to be a final report handed down by the end of the year. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Joe Lauder, with that update, I want to unpack this a little more now with an expert. And Justin Ellis is with us. Now, Justin's a senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Newcastle. 
He is with us now. G'day, Justin. Thanks for coming on, Hack. Oh, thanks, Dave. As an expert in crime, in police accountability, how significant do you think this inquiry has been? Oh, Dave, it's been it's been incredibly uh, significant, and it's in the title, Special Commission of Inquiry. So this this special commission had a range of powers that went beyond a standard um, a standard inquiry, uh, and you know powers to compel witnesses to give evidence and to compel the production of documents. And um, so that meant that um, this special commission had a, had access to a whole range of police data that may not otherwise have been the case. Uh, and as we heard in the um, the lead to our conversation, they have in, in effect um, resolved two matters um, and they've done great work. Yeah, I was going to ask, is there a lot that we've learned about how these crimes were happening and how they were handled? What we've learned is we've had aspects of, um, of problematic aspects of investigation. So in some cases where the police may not have investigated uh, enough or at all, or they may not have done forensic testing. So we had two cases where DNA testing was done, uh, one in the case of Crispin Dye, uh, and new evidence was found because the police hadn't um, done that in at the time of the of the murder. So um, those those cases, um, as, as you've already pointed out, have come to light. And what we've done here is also clarified the um, the, the number of bias motivated crimes in these in these deaths um, that are, that have been um, investigated. And I think that the inquiries found that um, in, in, in compared to some of the police inquiries that have led to this special commission, that there were more cases of bias and the police may have um, indicated in their inquiries. I mean, there were probably people listening now thinking 40 years seems like such a long time for these crimes to be happening, but also for some kind of inquiry like this to look into it. Why do you think it took so long? It's taken so long because of some of those previous inquiries, they didn't go far enough or the findings were inconclusive or there were some methodological issues with the way that the police were interpreting bias as far as some people are concerned. So we had several police inquiries. Then we had the the New South Wales Social, um, the, the Committee for um, Social Issues, the Standing Committee, they held an investigation and they suggested this form of commission be held. So I think the 40 years is significant in, I think the, one of the main takeaways from this is that regardless of when a, a crime has happened, regardless of when a death has occurred, you are still going to have people who will clearly want those matters to be resolved. It doesn't go away. So, you know, two decades, three decades, what have you, it's still important to that the victims are given the justice that they deserve as a, as their loved ones um, should get that as well. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Justin Ellis, who is a criminologist who's with the University of Newcastle about this gay hate crime inquiry that's been happening in New South Wales uh, for over a year and it's just wrapped up. The final hearing was this week. Justin, do you expect a lot to come out of this inquiry? Well, that's a, that's a good question, Dave, and I think that the um, Justice Sakar has has alluded to what might be coming when this report is handed to Parliament before the fifteenth of December, twenty twenty three. So we don't have long to wait. That's only a month. Uh, but I'll, I'll just read a, a quote here from from what he what he said in the the final sitting yesterday. Um, Many voiceless people have been given a voice. Recommendations will be made. Improvements in processes and procedures should follow. 
So it's in there in what what the justice is saying. Now, obviously, the um, the details of those recommendations will come to light um, pretty quickly. But um, yeah, we just have to wait and see what they might be. And I guess in terms of police reform, um, if there are some recommendations for reform to happen, it, it it's probably a long process, right? That doesn't happen overnight. No, and this is this is where, and we and we are talking about complex processes. We're talking about complex technologies in some cases, um, and so on. So that kind of cultural training, in addition to the technical training, um, you've got to develop the training, you've got to implement the training, you've got to evaluate the training. That could take years. But I think that the um, if if that is a recommendation, then obviously it it, it would be welcomed if it would um, improve processes and and mean that that you know, victims get um, speedy justice in a way that we would all hope for. Do you think that other states and territories, jurisdictions across the country will be looking at this and maybe thinking about similar courses of action, investigating, um, you know, similar crimes, deaths that have happened throughout history? Dave, that's another good question. My guess would be, and I can only provide and provide a guess because, you know, I'm not in those jurisdictions, uh, but I, I would sense that this does set a precedent in terms of the resources invested in this particular special commission. Uh, and I think that the, um, the the role of the public has been crucial in this special commission. Uh, and I think that it's provided a lot of um, comfort to a lot of people. And I'm sure that other jurisdictions will be looking at the recommendations quite closely to see what they might do in this space if they deemed it, it was um, necessary. Yeah, you have touched on this a little bit, but I guess, uh, you know, this was about recognising the impacts on the LGBT community as well. Like it wasn't just about the specific cases or solving crimes, it was recognising that these things had happened. Yes. And so, you know, we, we, we often definitely in the media, there's often a focus on an individual because, you know, th there's an increased relatability about what happened to that person, where they were and, and so on. But clearly what we're talking about here with bias motivated crimes is that you're targeting a whole group. Uh, and whether they are part of that group or not is um, is also central to the issue. So it's, it's where you are, it's what you're doing at a certain point in time that might get you caught up in that particular kind of labelling exercise. But I, I think the you know we've come a long way in terms of addressing um, bias in a whole range of ways in in our society at least and in many others. Um, the other problem though that we're seeing at the moment is this rise of anti-LGBTQ hate through mis and disinformation. So I guess it's a timely reminder that um, we need to remain vigilant um, and call out bias and prejudice when when we see it, if it's safe to do so. Well, we definitely appreciate your take on this. Criminologist Justin Ellis from the University of Newcastle, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Got some messages coming through, people asking about uh, what comes next. And I guess we will see within weeks as that report is handed down. We're going to move on now, but just a warning before we do, the story we are getting into uh, is about a hunger strike. It's something that you might find a bit intense. You may even find it triggering. Hack. I've gone too far now to give up unless the Albanese government makes a real commitment to climate action. On Triple J. Extreme protests for climate change are nothing new. Like we've seen people shut down roads, throw paint on artworks, school strikes. All this kind of stuff has been escalating in the past few years. We've been covering it on Hack. There is one type of protest, though, that's really confronting, and that is a hunger strike. When people stop eating in protest. 
and there's one happening right now outside Parliament House in Canberra. And while the politicians have spent this week in Parliament debating ideas, fighting, one man, Gregory Andrews, has been sitting outside in protest. He hasn't eaten in two weeks. Now, Gregory Andrews is no typical climate protester. He's a former Australian diplomat. He's also a First Nations man from Dharawal country, and he's with us now. Gregory Andrews, thank you very much for speaking with us on Hack. Thanks very much for having me, Dave. Now, Gregory, you were an ambassador for Australia and High Commissioner in West Africa. You were Australia's first threatened species commissioner. You were an advisor to former Environment Minister Greg Hunt. You were an academic, a yeah. person who knows everyone in the environment space, and you've operated at the highest levels of government. I'm wondering, you haven't eaten in 14 days. Why did you think a hunger strike was the only way for you to get your message across? Yeah, thanks, Dave. Actually, I think the way you just summed up the situation describes it perfect, per, perfectly. Despite all of the opportunities that I have to access and influence government, Australia is about to head off uh, the cliff of climate collapse. And our government here in Canberra is not only not doing enough to get emissions down, but the they're actually approving more coal mines and more massive gas projects. And I think I was pretty much at my wits end. I'd, I'd tried working within the government and I'd tried, you know, writing editorials and academic papers, but it just seemed that no one was listening. And I think this year the trigger for me was when Tanya Plibersek, our environment minister, approved her fourth coal mine since coming to office. Gregory, you've got five demands for the government. They include an end to subsidising fossil fuels, an urgent phase out of Australia's coal and gas exports, ending native forests, logging, updating environment protection laws. Do you think the government's seriously going to act on all those concerns? You know, I've actually had a yarn with quite a few uh, people since I've been lying on the lawns of Parliament House, like Allegra Spender and Sophie Scamp and um, Andrew Wilkie and David Pocock. And all of them agree that all of my demands are entirely reasonable. All of the technology exists for Australia and the whole world to decarbonise. It's not like going to the moon. I actually got a message this morning, actually, from a former colleague. It was one of the other things I did in my career. I was the Deputy Chief Negotiator for Australia in the United Nations Climate Change Negotiations. And I got a message from New York telling me that the Secretary General is aware of what I'm doing and is watching it closely. So my demands are actually quite reasonable. All I'm asking for at the moment, the Australian government is spending $11 billion a year subsidising fossil fuels, giving money to huge companies that pay no tax. So the, the measures that I'm calling for can save the government money, but more importantly, they're going to save our future. They're going to save my children. Sorry, I get a bit emotional because <laughs> I'm a bit tired now too, but they're going to save my kids who are 16 and 18 and don't have the future ahead of them that the politicians sitting behind me in Parliament House have had and enjoyed. Gregory, you mentioned that 
you got, you're getting a bit emotional and, I mean, you're two weeks into this hunger strike. Can I ask you how you are feeling at the moment? Yeah, it's like a, it's an interesting process and it's really hard to describe because I can't compare it to anything else I've done in my life. What happens to your body is actually quite interesting. We did evolve not to have supermarkets, you know, and, and, and meals three times a day. So the first day I was running on adrenaline and the next two days were really tough because my body was still trying to find sugar. And so I was like really weak and I nearly fainted a few times. But then from day three onwards, my whole gastrointestinal system shut down. Like, excuse my language or oversharing, but I haven't done a poo for 13 days. Um, and so I'm drinking water and I'm having a little bit of salt and my body has moved into what they call starvation mode. So I think I've got really good mental clarity. My body's definitely slowing down and, and I'm losing weight faster than I'd like to. Uh, and I don't want to go into organ failure, but right at the moment, as long as I walk slowly and lie down as much as possible, I've got the physical strength but I, I've really got the mental strength because just I'm like every day I just get a stream of people who come and visit me. I value my life and I don't want to die, but I feel strong and determined because for the first time ever, I feel that um, the people in Parliament House are having to have serious conversations about climate policy because if they don't, there's somebody out the front of Parliament House who could be dead. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with former Australian diplomat, academic, expert Gregory Andrews about his hunger strike outside Parliament House calling for greater action on climate change. It's been 14 days since he's eaten. So is there any indication, Gregory, from the government that they will speak with you or address any of these demands that you've put forward? Look, I've, I really feel bad because I like Anthony Albanese and I really respect him for what he did on The Voice. He was brave and he took something to the Australian people, but he's not showing the bravery and courage on climate change that he did on The Voice. But if he doesn't, everyone loses their voice. And so, no, I... I, I, the independents have been amazing, uh, but Labor, apart from Andrew Lee, who is um, one of the MPs here in Canberra, he came down and tried to talk me out of it and then did give me a bit of a lecture about government policy. And I said, look, I used to write all those regurgitated whole of government cleared talking points and I don't want to hear them because they're not fixing the problem, they're just justifying inaction. So I haven't heard from Anthony Albanese. I wrote to him about two months ago, and then I wrote to him last week, and I've been trying to call his um, office, but when you try to call his office, you can't speak to a human. You have to press different buttons, and then each time you get a recorded message. I just don't think that's good enough for the Prime Minister of Australia, that he, I don't expect him to take every Australian's call, but for him to not want to be able to have a human to answer his phone. Do you think, though, that there's a concern that this might encourage other people to harm themselves to send a message? Well, I, I'm actually not harming myself. I'm on a hunger strike and I don't want to die and I don't want to harm myself. I want the Australian government 
to actually take responsibility for Australia's emissions and reduce the harm to thousands of people who are already being harmed and billions in the future. So if we're going to talk about harm, the harm and the blame for the harm is on the people who sit in Parliament House who aren't taking the action that's required for a safe future for Australia. Gregory, how far will you go with this hunger strike? Yeah, look, I'm not going to give up because I've already gone this far and I'm not actually... Um, I'm not hungry. My, my whole system's shut down. Um, so I refuse to give up. But what happens... Because if I do, it'll be a waste. Everything I've done so far and all that I've achieved so far will be a waste. But I am willing to negotiate. What I'm just demanding and asking what all Australians want and what Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said he'd do. Gregory, I mean, obviously this is, uh, you know, really risky, really dangerous. Uh, do you have any message for young people out there who may be listening? Yeah, um, I think what I would say, I'm getting a bit emotional, so I just need to take a is that I'm doing it for all of Australia's young people. And my 16-year-old daughter and my 18-year-old son and my wife and my 83-year-old mother are behind me 100%. Gandhi did hunger strikes and used hunger strikes as a way to secure the freedom of hundreds of millions of people in India. I don't think he was accused of self-harm. So I think uh, what I would say to young people about what can um, they do, demand more from the people here. They don't have to be on a hunger strike, but show the government that their future's on the line and that they want the government to step up and be responsible. Well, look, we do appreciate you speaking with us, Gregory Andrews. Thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks, Dave. And yeah, we do have a lot of messages coming through on the text line, on Instagram as well. Someone says, look, I'm all for people following and doing whatever they feel passionate about, but all this does is affect his health. Someone else, though, I commend him for his dedication and raising awareness of this. It's extremely powerful and telling that an ex-government employee is calling them out in this way. Uh, other people saying um, maybe that they support what Gregory's doing. Others saying, no, it's it's not worth it. It's not worth the risk to your health. If this story has like raised any issues for you, if you think you'd like to speak with someone, uh, it's been a bit distressing. Lifeline is there, remember, on 13 11 14. You can catch them anytime. We are going to move on, though. Hack. Not everything can be fixed, but a lot of people really like the idea of they've at least given it a go before it goes into landfill. On Triple Jack. How many times have you thrown something out because you found a hole in it or it wouldn't turn on? You just figured maybe it's too hard to fix because most things we own now weren't really made to be repaired. Whether it's the tech you're using, your phone, what you're wearing, fast fashion, maybe it's the furniture you've got in your house. You buy it, use it for a few years, chuck it out, get something else. There is, though, a lot more interest in bringing back this lost art of repairing things. So heaps of people don't know how to do it. And so you've got to learn from somewhere. And there are all of these repair cafes popping up around the country, showing young Australians how to get behind the tools, how to fix things in their lives. Kira Proust has been looking into it. 
I'm at a repair cafe in the inner west of Sydney. It's a Saturday and there's a bunch of young people down here. The benches are covered in tools and things needing repairs. And I've just come down to suss out what all the fuss is about. Hello. Hi, Ossie, I'm Kira. Kira. Nice to meet you. How are you going? So the idea around the Bower is we're an op shop, but rather than putting that the kind of excess money that you get from an op shop into people, into like charity, we put it into the objects, into the care of objects. So running repair cafes, taking care of our objects, yeah, making space to care for things. Othi has worked at the Repair Cafe for a couple of years. The charity runs heaps of workshops across the city to help people repair items from home, like headphones, furniture and even clothes. Othi says they're noticing lots more young people turning up compared to when they first started out a couple of years ago. So when I first came, it was all old cobblers, like our elders kind of like just like fiddling away. Less so now, we've kind of like had a few that have kind of like moved on to different parts of their life. And then there's, yeah, there's like a good little contingent of young people that are like, I care about the environment, I want something hands-on, a lot of artists and like stuff like that. Carrie Wenzel, also from the Repair Cafe, says the young people she sees coming in want to learn about repairs mostly for environmental and economic reasons. I think in the old days it might have been just people didn't like throwing things away, didn't want to have to keep buying new things because they were not used to it. These days it's probably a combination of being environmentally conscious and also the cost of living because, you know, it costs money to keep on replacing things. 23-year-old Lucy Wiley is one of the people who came along to check out the electrical repairs workshop. She reckons while there is a shift among younger generations to be more environmentally conscious, lots of people still get sucked into consumer culture. I think I went into Kmart the other day and was just like just overwhelmed by how many things there were, like just like brand new and stuff. It's also out of like necessity, right? Because like living in like a cost of living crisis, like you do sometimes just need the cheapest, easiest thing and if you can go online in two seconds and order something and it comes to your door, like Amazon will deliver the next day. It's not a bad thing to want the quick thing because you're time poor, you're money poor and things like that. She says coming to a repair cafe was a good way to get perspective on the value of the things we own and buy. I feel like I'd rather spend more and get something that's good quality and just have it forever. I think we've lost that idea of having things for a long time because it's like, oh, this will die in a couple of years or this will go to the tip or something. Aussies are creating more and more waste every year. Data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics shows households are one of the biggest sectors generating waste, throwing away more than 12 million tonnes in the last reported financial year. Another big issue is fashion waste. On average, we all purchase 56 new items of clothing each year, while more than 200,000 tonnes are tossed into landfill. It's a problem that Marrickville Sewing School Useful Box is trying to address locally. Teacher Kaz Adams says she's recently noticed an uptick in young people wanting to learn new sustainable skills. I started sewing when I was nine years old and in my sort of 20s I never told really anyone that I sewed because it was such a grandma thing to do or kind of a daggy thing to do. But now suddenly cool again and I think it's just because younger people are kind of more attracted to it because they're wanting to buck that fast fashion trend they want to kind of live a more sustainable life. She says young people are also really craving social connection since COVID which these workshops can help provide. COVID has played a huge part in the rise of sewing now I guess. We all kind of were at home we're looking for something to do oh yes I have that sewing machine in the garage it's all dusty 
dusty, let me dust that off. Once all the lockdowns were lifted, my classes became quite busy because everyone was wanting to learn more, wanting to be with other people and to have that sort of mental health break as well, I think. Caro from the Repair Cafe is stoked that repair culture is catching on right across Australia, but says there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in the way objects are made. That's one of the Bower's main purposes, is to foster a culture of repair. And we encourage people to get involved in helping to change things because it actually really is still quite bad. Too many products are made without thinking about the whole life cycle of the product and they build them with products like plastics fused with metals so that you can't pull them apart and recycle them. Hack on Triple J. Kira Proust with that story and heaps of you on the text line messaging in about all the stuff that you're repairing all of the time. Someone else says, I grew up on a farm. We had to fix stuff all the time. Newer stuff is usually a bit harder to fix, I reckon, mainly because it's made to be thrown away when it stops working. Controlled obsolescence, I think they call it. Yeah, we have spoken about this before on Hack, especially with tech and the right to repair movements. There's moves around the world to kind of make tech companies responsible, hold them accountable, make sure people can repair the things, their devices, if they want to. Another person, Josh from Mannering Park, says, my Xbox One's Blu-ray drive stopped working, so I bought a new module and soldered it into the existing disc tray, and it worked again. Successfully traded it in. Huge. You've got to be proud with that when you learn something. Another person says, I just spent 25 bucks on getting a lady to uh, to fix some holes in my cardigans. It was money well spent. That was from Kath in Nunnawal Country. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.